Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher as well. And, of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. And, in fact, a new review has indeed come in, and it's from Pam, Just Pam. Now, for those of you who listened to the last episode, you'll probably remember that Pam, Just Pam, previously emailed a review to rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com. But guess what? She did it again this week, and because she took the time to write it, I'm going to take the time to read it. And by the way, Pam, just Pam, please don't feel that you have any obligation to write a review for every episode, but I'm certainly not opposed to it. Okay, here we go. Quote, The cherry on your entertainment Sunday. Once again, the Raw Attitude podcast brings it. Henry's narrative, as always, is highly entertaining. His attention to detail is impressive. His enthusiasm contagious. If I closed my eyes, I could imagine myself proudly waving my foam ass along with my peeps. Fast forward to the present, said foam ass can be yours for the bargain basement price of $150 on eBay, plus shipping, of course. Next, we come to the mandatory sign waivers. I don't like to make assumptions, but based on content, I have a hunch none of them were missing a Mensa meeting to be there. Some of the goings-on included a simulated bloodbath match between Edge and Gangrel, which didn't go according to plan. No surprise there. Shane McMahon giving props to Vince McMahon, the severed head of the WWF. Awesome visual dude. Triple H threatening Stone Cold Steve Austin with an out-of-body experience. Bring on SummerSlam. Favorites Kane, Undertaker, and Big Show entertained us. We had baseball bat action a la Tanya Harding. Jeff Jarrett and D'Lo Brown in a double title match. D'Lo emerging a double champion. The European Continental Champion, a unicorn if ever there was one. We learned Jesse Ventura will be returning after an absence of more than eight years. The ever-talented Val Venus, it is said, comes in different languages. Parlez-vous français. Another highlight was learning of Billy Gunn's beautiful, elegant, and well-manicured ass, and here I thought I was unique. Okay, class, what have we learned from episode 85 from August 2nd, 1999? I, for one, would have had in my possession a vial of holy water and a crucifix. Bottom line, way to go, Henry. Bring on episode 86. End quote. Well, Pam, just Pam, consider episode 86 Broughton. And once again, thank you very much for making the effort to review this fine podcast. I do truly appreciate your lengthy, amazing reviews. Well done, as always. So with that being said, let's get into the show. It is Monday, August 9th, 1999, and we are live from Allstate Arena in Rosemont, Illinois, a short drive from the nearby city of Chicago. And by the way, just a few weeks prior to this show in June of 1999, Allstate Arena actually became the new name of this venue, having previously been called the Rosemont Horizon since it opened in 1980. 
Personally, I think the Rosemont Horizon is a pretty fucking awesome name for an arena, but hey, those insurance companies have deep pockets, so get used to that Allstate name because it is actually still called Allstate Arena here in the present day. But no matter what you want to call it, this arena has been a huge hub for professional wrestling, having first hosted the WWF's Wrestling Classic pay-per-view back in 1985. And here's a quick list of some of the other events you could have seen at this venue over the past 37 years. 33 episodes of Raw, 16 episodes of SmackDown, just one episode of Nitro in October of 95, just one WCW pay-per-view, Spring Stampede 1994, but a whopping 24 WWE pay-per-views, with the most recent one actually being just a few weeks ago here in the present day, Hell in a Cell 2022, which aired on June 5th. And some of the other WWE pay-per-views here include a portion of WrestleMania 2. WrestleMania 13, WrestleMania 22, Extreme Rules 2012, where Brock Lesnar had his first WWE match after an eight-year absence from the company, losing to John Cena, and perhaps one of the greatest pay-per-views of all time, Money in the Bank 2011, where CM Punk defeated John Cena for the WWE Championship before promptly, quote-unquote, leaving the company. So needless to say, there's a lot of history in this building. And the very first thing we see when we open this show is the Millennium Countdown, which is now down to 1 hour and 25 minutes. So right around 10.25 p.m. Eastern Time tonight, we will find out what this countdown has been leading up to. And by the way, I completely forgot that they actually led off this show with the countdown clock. They knew this was going to be a big deal, and they wanted us, the fans, to feel that anticipation. Not going to lie, I actually got some retroactive 23 years later goosebumps there, remembering back to when I first watched this show back in 1999. Ah, take me back. Take me back. And from there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and by the way, they had a lot more pyro than usual for this opening, probably about 20 seconds worth of it, as opposed to the usual maybe 10 seconds max. And then we get the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include My Mom Loves Kane WCW Causes Narcolepsy I Flew 1,000 Miles to See You Rock Please Date Me Paul Bearer Ate My Burrito. Can Kane Fix My Tooth? Get it? It's an Isaac Yankum reference. Har har. I got two words for UPS. Suck it. So that person must have received a damaged package or something. I want to do the puppy's doggy style. The real Chicago Bull with a drawing of Rock's Brahma Bull tattoo. I want X-Pac in a brawl for all. Kane needs to get laid. Not even Kiss can save Nitro. Three people each holding up signs which respectively said, Suck me down. I'd rather be on Venus. And amusingly, five fans had a sign which said, Hey Deborah, show us yours and we will you ours. So yes, they actually wrote it incorrectly, but I'll give them credit for trying because the men who created that sign were all wearing white bras. So I respect the effort. And we officially kick off the show with The Rock heading to the ring to a monstrous pop. And while he's making his entrance, Jim Ross informs us that Rock was attacked last night on Sunday Night Heat by the newfound alliance of The Undertaker and The Big Show. And in fact, Heat actually went off the air with Big Show nailing Rock with a choke slam. A quick side note here, by the way, if you also want another noteworthy moment from that episode of Heat, 
Terry Runnels spikes Meat's drink with Viagra, and he has to wrestle the big boss man with a boner, so that's fun. But anyway, we then cut backstage where we see The Undertaker and The Big Show standing near the curtain. Show is ready to go out into the arena to attack The Rock again, but Taker tells him to wait because he wants to see what Rock has to say first, and I'm glad they decided to wait because Rock's promo here ends up being pretty hilarious. So let's take a listen to what The Great One has to say, and we'll see where the segment goes from there. Big Show, last night on Sunday Night Heat, you did something you should never should have done, and that was put your big sweaty palms on the people's champion. And the Big Show did it with a vengeance. Yeah, I thought it was a big, big sweaty show, fist. Big Show, you think you impressed The Rock? Let The Rock make something perfectly clear to you, is you have never Press the rock from the time your crappy music hits. Well, it's the big slow. <laughs> big slow? <laughs> you pay for that. And every single rock fan stops, pauses, and takes a look, and they all say this I'm going to take a leak. This guy sucks. Uh oh. Big Show and The Undertaker are not going to like this. That's supposed to impress somebody. And then, Big Show, you do something that is without a shadow of a doubt the most impressive thing The Rock has ever seen, and that's this.
So as you heard there, The Rock proceeds to hilariously mock the Big Show. And by the way, in case you were wondering, that goofy noise that Rock made there was him holding up his arm and impersonating Big Show's signature chokeslam gesture. And apparently that was just a bridge too far because The Undertaker and The Big Show then emerged from backstage. And to his credit, Rock isn't afraid to go one versus two against them, but it doesn't work out for him as the two seven-footers easily get the better of him. From there, though, X-Pac makes his return after having been hospitalized by Taker two weeks ago, but he also gets beaten down by the two big men. The road dog Jesse James then also arrives to try and provide some backup, but he quickly gets dispatched as well. But then, at long last, we see that there actually is someone who can withstand this barrage, and it's the Undertaker's brother, Kane. The Big Red Machine proceeds to enter the ring and clothesline Big Show over the top rope, and then he does the same to The Undertaker, and at that point, Taker and Show decide to head backstage, now that they're potentially at a 4-on-2 disadvantage. However, as you heard Jim Ross say at the end there, The Rock refuses any help from Kane, X-Pac, or Road Dog, even though we can see that he's clutching his ribs in pain. Spoiler alert! I dare say that we may end up seeing Rock again before the night is over, and I think you probably know which segment I'm talking about. But with all that being said, we got off to a very hot start here, and the Chicago crowd was really into it. The Rock is hilarious, The Undertaker and The Big Show are still being put over incredibly strong, Kane is still loyal to his friend X-Pac, and Road Dog obviously has long-standing ties to X-Pac as well, with both of them being the final two members of DX. Great opening segment, and it certainly got me amped up for the rest of the show. And from there, we go to the commentary table, where Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler inform us of what's on tap tonight, most notably the fact that the acting governor of Minnesota and the special guest referee at SummerSlam, Jesse the Body Ventura, will be making an appearance on tonight's show, his first time back in the WWF in nine years. And while JR and the King are running down tonight's card, we cut backstage where we see a black stretch limousine driving out of the rainy Chicago night and into the arena. Both commentators assume that it's Jesse Ventura inside of the limo, but, well, let's take a listen and see if they're correct. And as we said, the atmosphere here in Chicago all day has been absolutely electrifying. Uh -oh. I would assume here he comes. That is uh, Jesse the Body Ventura. Ooh, what a ride. Jesse has been in town for a few hours. We're assuming that this is Jesse the Body arriving here tonight. You better be on your best behavior, JR. Oh, I will. Of course, uh, Jesse will be the special referee for the WWF title matchup at SummerSlam in Minneapolis, Minnesota. How many bodyguards do you think he's got? I'm sure he's got a lot of them. out there, Jim. What? what? Ah! Shawn Michaels. What? That's a commissioner. Wait a minute. Shawn Michaels. So no, it's not the governor who exits the limousine, but rather the commissioner, the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels, who I believe we haven't seen since WrestleMania 15 about four months ago when he removed special guest referee Vince McMahon from the main event. So why exactly is Shawn Michaels here in Chicago tonight? Presumably, we'll find out shortly. But before we can delve into that, we actually get a quick ad for StoneCold.com. Remember those days, instead of Stone Cold simply having his own page on WWF.com, they gave him his own website, and I think they did this with most of the big-name wrestlers in the company for a while, too. Fun fact, if you type StoneCold.com into your browser today, it will direct you to 
Steve Austin's bio page on WWE.com. So yes, WWE still owns that URL all these years later, and really I can't say I blame them for not wanting to let that one go. And after our first commercial break, we go backstage where Michael Cole is with X-Pac and Kane. And somehow, X-Pac actually manages to say goddamn twice in this short promo, which is usually a network TV no-no. But most notably, now that they've gotten some measure of revenge on The Undertaker and The Big Show, Pac challenges the Acolytes to a WWF Tag Team Championship match tonight. So on top of all the other stuff we have on tap, we now have a title match on this show as well. Also, I could be wrong, but I think this is the first time that we've seen Kane rock one of those singlets that has some see-through mesh in the front, which exposes his chest underneath. Again, I could be wrong, but I don't remember seeing him wear an outfit like this before, and I couldn't help but notice it because his right nipple is on prominent display in the background while X-Pac is speaking. Hashtag free Kane's nipple. And from there, we go back into the arena for our first match of the night, Gangrel versus Christian, who is accompanied by his obscure theme song. In case you need a reminder, last week Gangrel was about to defeat Edge in a bloodbath match, but Christian swerved Gangrel and poured blood on him instead before embracing Edge and confirming that he had abandoned Gangrel. Fun times. Now, as always, Gangrel's entrance where he comes up through the flames is awesome. However... Once he gets to the ring, we can clearly hear a fire extinguisher being sprayed off camera, so perhaps those flames got a little bit too out of hand on this night. And it definitely would have been a shame if the building burned down, because we know it's named after Allstate, so they clearly have shitty insurance. One other side note, though. While this match is going on, we can see a fan in the front row wearing a clown wig, and I'm about 90% sure that this is WWE superfan Frank the Clown, who is himself a Chicago resident. If you're not familiar with this guy, he wears the aforementioned clown wig and sometimes clown makeup as well when he goes to wrestling events, and somehow he has managed to become the real-life boyfriend of Mick Foley's daughter, Noelle. So you see that, Juggalos? There's hope for you, too. And I actually reached out to Frank on Twitter asking him to confirm if this was indeed him in the crowd, and, well, he never got back to me. Must be too busy answering all that fan mail. But anyway, getting back to the match, Gangrel versus Christian, Early on, I'm pretty sure we actually got a rare Gangrel Sucks chant, which actually makes a lot of sense if you think of the gimmick. But this match only goes on for about two minutes until we get our finish, and I'm actually going to play it for you here because it goes in a rather unexpected direction. We'll pick it up right as Christian is setting up Gangrel for the Impaler slash Unprettier slash Kill Switch, so let's see how this all goes down. He didn't seem to appreciate their help. Look at this! Oh, wait a minute. Hardy Boys! Hardy Boys are out here. Hardy boys, uh, Matt and Jeff Hardy are here. Oh, Christian going airborne on Matt Hardy. And now the Hardy's former tag team champions. Well, I mean, well, now what's Christian's problem with these guys? Well, the Brood and the Hardys have had some issues. There's no doubt about that, gang, in the, in the immediate uh, past here. Of course, the Hardys. Oh, oh, did you see that? Oh, the, that red, whatever that stuff is, it got right into Christian's eyes. Boom. Man, what a DDT that was. Face first with Christian. And the Hardy Boys with a distraction. And Gangrel beats Christian. And now the Hardy Boys are beating Christian up. <laughs> the Hardy Boys with those Edge. Oh, look out. Oh, my gosh. Edge now coming to the aid of his, his brother Christian. Oh, what a spear by Edge. What a scintillating move there. 
Edge looking for the downward spiral, but instead, it's Edge that receives the DDT from Gangrel. And now Gangrel and the Hardys are triple teaming Edge. And what a DDT that was. What is going on here? The Hardys and, and Gangrel, here comes Michael Hayes, hey. the manager of the Hardy Boys. Michael Hayes has orchestrated a masterpiece here. He's a- Wait a minute. Michael Hayes pulling his, his troops away and having some stern words with the Hardys. Look at him. Look at him. Oh, the Hardys from behind. They, they're turning Michael Hayes. The Hardys from behind are assaulting no. Michael Hayes. The Hardys well, look at are wow. doing a number on their manager. Well, I would have sworn that Michael Hayes put these guys up there. Oh, sent on bomb by Jeff Hardy. And Matt and Jeff, now Matt, Jeff Hardy, and Gangrel as they duck triple-teamed Edge are triple-teaming Michael Hayes. They've got some helping. Hayes has had it. What is this? Is this a relationship with the Hardys and Gangrel? So Christian set Gangrel up for the Impaler, but before he could hit it, the Hardy boys ran down to ringside to interfere. Christian left the ring and started brawling with Matt and Jeff, and he then went to climb to the top rope to hit Gangrel with some sort of move. But when he jumped, Gangrel spit blood, or rather, red viscous liquid, into Christian's face as the Hardys distracted referee Tim White. Gangrel then hit a jumping DDT, Tim White turned back around, he made the three count, and so your winner of the match is indeed Gangrel. And by the way, RIP to Tim White, who recently passed away here in the present day on June 19th, 2022. And after the match, the Hardys started beating on Christian some more until his brother Edge ran into the ring to make the save, nailing Matt Hardy with a spear in the process. However, Gangrel quickly snuck up on Edge and hit him with a jumping DDT, taking him out of the equation. Gangrel and the Hardys then teamed up to continue beating on Edge. But at that point, the Hardys manager Michael P.S. Hayes came to the ring, and he seemingly told Matt and Jeff to stop what they were doing and come with him. So the Hardys then proceeded to attack Michael Hayes as well, culminating with a twist of fate by Matt, followed by a senton bomb from Jeff. All three men then started attacking Hayes until a group of referees finally ran down to ringside to separate them. So there you go, having been spurned by Christian, it appears as though Gangrel has potentially enlisted the Hardy boys to join him now instead. And I suppose that's a good idea in theory, but I mean, a feud between the Hardy boys and Edge and Christian, I I just don't see that being all that interesting. Certainly, nothing memorable will ever come from that. And from there, we go backstage, where Michael Cole is with your WWF Tag Team Champions, the Acolytes, and as you may recall, X-Pac and Kane challenged them to a match a few minutes ago, and now, Farouk and Bradshaw have officially accepted. So there you have it, the tag team titles will be on the line later on tonight. And after a commercial break, we get a weekly occurrence on Raw at this point, the Rock's Gettin' Sheffy With It Chef Boyardee commercial. I'd honestly be curious to know if The Rock has eaten Chef Boyardee once since he filmed that commercial 23 years ago. I'm guessing probably not. But from there, we go back into the arena where Jerry the King Lawler is in the ring. And the reason why Lawler is in the ring is to introduce your special guest referee for SummerSlam, the acting governor of Minnesota, Jesse the Body Ventura. And I will say, the crowd is definitely happy to have him back in the WWF after a nine-year absence. So after all this time away, what does Jesse have to say? Let's take a listen. Jesse, you said it. You shocked the world, and I know you're going to shock SummerSlam. And I know you got 
Some things you want to get off your chest and have at it. Well, first of all, King Jerry Lawler, I've been out of wrestling for a while. And most people know I've been doing a lot of other stuff. But it's time to review for a moment who Jesse the Body Ventura is. First of all, I am a former wrestling champion, so I know my way in and out of the ring. Second of all, I was the first referee ever at SummerSlam because it was a special deal required again. And third and most importantly, I am the only professional wrestler who can legitimately say he was a Navy SEAL. Now, you know, you people are going to see a lot of frauds out there. You're going to see a lot of Navy SEAL wannabes, people that want to pretend they were, but really were not. People who, when it was time to serve their country, they ran off like gutless cowards and probably played in a hippie rock band. People who also like to pretend they're Navy SEALs on television shows, on bad-acted made-for-TV movies with Bozo the Clown haircuts. Well, I am the real deal when it comes to being a pro wrestler, former Navy SEAL. I know Rogue Warrior Demo Dick Marcinko, the commander. He's a friend of mine. I was trained by Master Chief Terry Mother Moy. I also just secured the first time in history a civilian has secured Class 226 Navy SEALs from Hell Week. And King, I also climbed the rope ladder a week ago on board the USS Pearl Harbor. I was given eight bells and a salute from both the captain and the executive officer. Now, what I'm getting down to here is SummerSlam takes place August 22nd at the Target Center in Minneapolis. Well, we all know who is the power in Minnesota. And we all know why did the World Wrestling Federation come to Jesse the Body Ventura for a match of this magnitude, a World Heavyweight Championship match? Because they know I am the only person who can deliver law and order to where a champion will be decided in the center of the ring and that that champion will truly be the best wrestler in the World Wrestling Federation. And let me say, wrestler, King Jerry Lawler, wrestler. Now, I know who the two men are. Stone Cold Steve Austin. That's the champ. And Triple H. And you know what? Before I get to that, I want to say one thing else. If you don't believe the power that I have, notice you don't see that scumbag Vince McMahon anywhere around. 
all in all, not a bad promo from Jesse, considering it's been a while since he's done one, although I'm sure he probably did a bunch of speeches on the campaign trail. And I was particularly pleased that he referenced the fact that he was the special guest referee in the main event of the first ever SummerSlam back in 1988. And then he segues into talking about being a Navy SEAL, which he's obviously quite proud of, and rightfully so, because that shit is pretty badass. And in case you were confused when he started mentioning people with Bozo the Clown haircuts who pretend to be Navy SEALs in made-for-TV movies, that was a reference to Jesse's lifelong enemy Hulk Hogan, who had starred in two made-for-the-TNT network movies called Assault on Devil's Island and Assault on Death Mountain, where he played a Navy SEAL. Side note, those movies were later renamed Shadow Warriors and Shadow Warriors 2 for some reason, in case you feel like torturing yourself and watching them. And finally, Jesse concludes by referring to Vince McMahon as a scumbag, which is clearly always an evergreen statement. But then, before he can go any further into detail about Vince being a piece of shit, Jesse gets interrupted by your SummerSlam number one contender Triple H with China by his side. So let's take a listen to what happens from there. I just got a simple message, Triple H, and for you to listen to, China. August 22nd at the Target Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota at SummerSlam, you'll get your shot at the title. But I will tell you right now, you better work on your wrestling moves because the best wrestler is going to win that night between you and Stone Cold Steve Austin because it's my way or the highway in that ring. Those are the rules. Live with it. You know... You must be stuck in the 70s or something. I hear you out here talking about former this, former that. I was, I used to be. And I'm beginning to think that the air up there has got to be doing something to your brain. It's got to be throwing you off, making you see and do funny things. Settling chant directed to uh, the number one. I defender. think they're talking to you. Let me make this clear. This is not Minnesota. This is my world. This right here, where your two little feet are standing, dead center in the middle of what is my ring. You better explain to him that this is my country, which is bigger than your ring. You better tell him to go look at the New York Times today, to go look at the L.A. Times today, and see whose picture stood with the President of the United States today. That was the body. You might have been standing face to face with a president, but right now you're standing face to face, nose to nose, eye to eye with me. And I don't care who you are, and I don't care who you've got with you. If right here in the middle of this ring, I feel like kicking your ass, I will. Oh, come on, Helmsley. Show a little class for once. Commissioner! 
Michaels has got something on his mind. I guarantee you, Michaels uh, is not in Chicago. He is San Antonio by accident. Michaels is not in town to go watch the Cubs play. I'm making hot. I'm making sugar. Then he's getting weak. Now, you know as well as I do, Triple H, that Jesse the Body Ventura has standards and practices that he must abide by. But I don't. Whoa. There you go. You see, come SummerSlam, this man right here will be the most powerful referee in World Ref Wrestling Federation history? And if I'm not mistaken, I thought I heard you say that this is your world. Well, every fan of the World Wrestling Federation knows just who it was that brought you into this world. Shawn Michaels, but Hillsley says that now it's Hillsley's time. Now, if you don't get that glare out of your stare, boy, I'm gonna knock it off. Oh, Hillsley shoving the commissioner, and Michaels and Hillsley may go at it right here. Jesse Ventura intervening here, and Michaels is getting ready to fight. Shawn Michaels is ready to fight Triple H right here, right now. Ventura telling something to Michaels, maybe giving Michaels some advice, I don't know. Now normally, I'd beat your ass right here, right now. But Jesse the body has conveniently informed me when you got as much stroke and power as we do. What this is, this is politics. And when you've got the stroke of the body and HBK, you need not get physical. You want to get physical? You got it tonight. You, Undertaker, and Stone Cold Steve Austin. triple threat match and Triple H it may very well be indeed your time but tonight it's gonna be my way hit my music can you imagine that tonight Austin the Undertaker Triple H triple threat match I've got the look cooler heads prevailed thanks to Jesse the body so as you heard there, Triple H was clearly unimpressed with Jesse Ventura's past accomplishments, and he then threatened to kick Jesse's ass right then and there. But at that point, WWF Commissioner Shawn Michaels emerged from backstage. And somehow, HBK sounded rustier on his promo than Jesse did, almost accidentally calling the company the World Referee Federation. In fairness to Shawn, though, he was probably severely intoxicated around this point in his career. But anyway, Triple H doesn't appreciate the interruption, and he proceeds to shove HBK. And interestingly, they actually tease that we're going to get a brawl between the two men who started Degeneration X, but instead, 
Jesse Ventura gets in the middle of them to break things up. And from there, Jesse actually pulls HBK aside and has a quick conversation with him, which was clearly a metaphor for his foreign policy. He was able to prevent a conflict through diplomacy as opposed to violence. Obviously, our world leaders could learn a lot from that. So yes, HBK then proceeds to make a match for later on tonight. Triple H versus The Undertaker versus WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I'm going to go ahead and assume that this is a non-title match because otherwise Jesse Ventura just helped to book a match tonight that's better than the one he's going to be involved with in two weeks. But there you go, a lengthy segment, but a very enjoyable one, and it helped to hype up SummerSlam and set up tonight's main event. And this also goes to show you how high the WWF is on Triple H at this point. Presumably, an acting governor taking part in a wrestling show is going to make all the highlight reels and news shows, and Hunter is the guy they choose to come out and confront Jesse, similar to how they gave Stone Cold the rub by having him interrupt and mix it up a little bit with Mike Tyson. So clearly, Triple H is the guy that they're trying to build, but, well, let's just say that his SummerSlam opponent isn't quite as high on Hunter being the top guy, which we'll see as the next few weeks unfold. But all in all, a very good showing for the returning Jesse Ventura. Plus, we even got a returning Shawn Michaels for good measure, so thumbs up from me on this one. And after that segment concludes, we then get an ad for a very big debut, which is taking place in just a few weeks. We've witnessed the end of an era. We've seen the most defiant champion of all time. Expect the unexpected as we enter the dawn of a new age. And folks, it don't get no bigger than this. The WWF explodes onto network television when SmackDown premieres August 26th on Prime Time. Prepare for impact when the most dangerous soap opera invades Prime Time. Yes, that's right. On top of all the other craziness that's going on, the premiere of SmackDown on UPN is only two and a half weeks away on Thursday, August 26th, 1999. And as you all are probably aware by now, SmackDown is still going strong 23 years later, though it has bounced around to several different networks since then. And in case you're wondering, yes, the premiere of SmackDown will get its own bonus episode on this podcast, so fear not. And when we come back from commercial, we see footage from earlier today where D'Lo Brown is continuing to try to help Mark Henry lose weight. This time, the two of them are jogging in a park somewhere, but Mark says he has to pee, so he stops running and heads off into the woods. But then, while D'Lo is waiting for him, a car pulls up and Jeff Jarrett gets out. He then proceeds to jump D'Lo from behind, throwing him face-first into a tree, and then dropping a trash can onto him for good measure, as we can hear Deborah yelling at him to stop in the background. Jeff then gets back into the car, and the two of them drive off, and in case you need a reminder of why Jeff did that, last week D'Lo beat Jarrett in a title versus title match, so D'Lo is currently your reigning Eurocontinental champion. And that provides a fitting segue because we then go back into the arena for our next match, the aforementioned Jeff Jarrett accompanied by Deborah versus Val Venus. And in the ultimate heel move, when Val grabs a mic and goes to cut his usual sexual innuendo promo, Jarrett jumps him from behind before he can do it. How dare you, sir? And shortly after the match begins, Jim Ross tells us that he's gotten word via his headset that something has happened in a stairwell backstage, but as of right now, that's the only information that he has. Quite the vague little cliffhanger, but stay tuned for more on that, presumably. But anyway, only about a minute into this match, Val Venus takes control, and so, 
Deborah gets up on the ring apron. She tries to get Val's attention, and really, of all the people to distract with the promise of puppies, you'd have to think that Val would probably be at the top of the list of people who would take the bait there. But no, it doesn't work. Jarrett tries to sneak up on Val, but he senses it coming and moves out of the way, leaving Jarrett face-to-face with Deborah. Val then takes that opportunity to go behind Double J. He picks him up, and he nails him with a blue thunder bomb. He makes the cover, referee Teddy Long makes the count, and that is good enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the match in a tidy one minute and 24 seconds, Val Venus. And after the match concludes, just like he did last week when he lost to D'Lo Brown, Jarrett started berating Deborah and blaming her for him losing the match. So eventually that pure class gentleman Val Venus reemerges and punches Jarrett in the face, so Double J heads off backstage. Meanwhile, the big Valboski then holds the bottom rope open for Deborah, and the two of them walk off together. Interesting. It certainly seems as though they're teasing a bit of a romance here between Val and Deborah, which I'm fairly sure does not end up happening, but hey, if I'm wrong, I will freely eat my words. What we can tell, though, is that Jeff Jarrett appears to currently be in two feuds, one with D'Lo Brown and one with his own valet. The man's versatility knows no bounds. And after that segment concludes, we go backstage where we can now see what Jim Ross was referencing a few moments ago. We cut to a stairwell in the arena, and we can see that someone has been attacked and is lying unconscious, and that someone is your WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Wow. So even though Jesse Ventura and Shawn Michaels just booked a triple threat match tonight that involves Stone Cold, it looks as though his participation in the match may be in doubt. And after a commercial break, we come back live where Stone Cold is being stretchered into an ambulance as Michael Cole tells us that a cinder block was found near Austin's head, so it certainly appears as though someone has attacked and apparently tried to murder him. Commissioner Shawn Michaels then shows up to try and get some more information, but while he's doing that, Triple H also arrives on the scene asking what happened. An angry HBK storms off, and the ambulance then proceeds to drive Stone Cold to a local medical facility. And I have to say, if you show the fans that Steve Austin is in the building, and then you have him taken out before he can even make an appearance in front of the live crowd, well, kudos for the ballsiness, my friends, because that could certainly piss a lot of people off. But we're not done yet, because we then go back inside the arena where Shawn Michaels is heading to the ring, and he tells us that he has his suspicions about who was behind the attack on Stone Cold, singling out his former friend, Triple H. And so, Hunter and China then proceed to emerge from backstage, and, well, take a listen to what happens from there. You know what in the hell I'm talking about? I don't even know what happened back there. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, Hunter, I taught you everything you know, boy. The only thing you don't understand is that I'm the teacher and you're the student. Now, you may have eliminated one of your opponents tonight in that triple threat match. But you, my friend, are definitely going to wrestle tonight. That triple threat match is now going to be a Falls Count Anywhere match. Wow. How can you have it? You got three people. Austin's in a hospital. No disqualification. No time limit. No count out. And it is also going to be for 
the number one contendership at SummerSlam. What? What? So if you want that match at SummerSlam, you're going to have to earn it tonight. And just to make hey, sure... you can't do that to me. I earned that slot. This is my time, punk, and I earned it. You can't do that to me. Oh, but I can. I'm the commissioner, and I can do whatever the hell I damn well please. Boy, Helmsley doesn't like this at all. And just to make sure you're a good little boy, I'm going to go ahead and special referee that match. Now, wait a second. It's a triple threat, falls count anywhere. I got all that. But you and I both saw Austin taken out of here in an ambulance. Right. He's not here, so it isn't happening. Well, what we're going to do then is find you another opponent. Who's it going to be? Now, the Uh question is, who is the kind of person that would take advantage of this kind of opportunity. Who is the kind of person that would stab their own mother in the back for just this one chance? Who's the kind of person who has been living in somebody else's shadow for so long that they would just be jumping at a chance to go to SummerSlam and face the World Wrestling Federation Champion. He ain't talking about The Rock. Who is it? Who is it? Well, I think I've got that person. Tonight in the Triple Threat match, it's going to be Triple H. It's going to be The Undertaker. Yeah, who? And the third and final opponent in that triple threat match to see who the number one contender at SummerSlam will be is China. Oh my God, what? I believe in this. Wait a minute, no, 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 no. All right, all right, all right. Enough is enough, Sean. Enough is enough. All due respect, China's just a girl. Let's not put her in this spot, Sean, because she could get hurt. This is serious business. This is for the number one contender slot. No place for a woman. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, no. I don't think so. Michaels is playing politics. Take that opportunity, Commissioner Michaels. What? Just a woman. Try me, Triple H. So, yes, since Stone Cold Steve Austin has apparently been incapacitated, Commissioner Michaels feels the need to change the announced main event, making himself the special guest referee for it in the process. And instead of it being Austin versus Triple H versus The Undertaker, the new main event will now be for the number one contendership at SummerSlam, and our matchup will be Triple H 
versus The Undertaker versus China. And as you heard there, Triple H says that China is just a woman and she could get hurt, to which China then proceeds to yank the microphone away from Hunter, and she says that she will indeed accept HBK's invitation to participate in the number one contenders match. So yes, folks, by the end of tonight's broadcast, China could be in line to main event SummerSlam against Stone Cold Steve Austin and potentially win the WWF title. Quite the turn of events. Although really, if Stone Cold just got his head bashed in with a friggin' cinder block, will he even be available for SummerSlam in two weeks? I mean, Christ, he could be dead by the end of the night. But okay, let's assume he'll be ready. Tonight, we will definitively find out who will face him for the title on August 22nd. Triple H, The Undertaker, or China. Buckle up. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is our WWF Tag Team Title Match. Champions, the Acolytes, versus Challengers, X-Pac, and Kane. And by the way, X-Pac and Kane have some interesting mashup action going on now when it comes to their entrance. Instead of each man coming to the ring separately, as they had been doing all this time, Kane's music begins to play, but then it cuts off and segues into the DX theme. And when both men got to the ring, X-Pac did his usual crotch chopping with Pyro in the background, but when he hit the last crotch chop, Kane quickly lifted and dropped his arms to time his ring post Pyro explosion with X-Pac's. Nice little bit of synchronicity there. Not sure why it took them this long to actually coordinate their entrances, but I'd say it works. And getting into the match, if you want the spot of the night so far, then holy shit, be sure to check out what happens when Kane tags X-Pac into the ring, because X-Pac starts mixing it up with Farouk, and, well, that doesn't exactly work out too well for him. Why? Because Farouk absolutely levels X-Pac with a vicious-looking spinebuster. I mean, think of how a normal, incredibly stiff Ron Simmons spinebuster looks, and now imagine that he does an even stiffer one to a 150-pound guy he can easily pick up and flatten to the canvas. Frankly, I don't know how X-Pac can take that move without getting a concussion from the whiplash, but thankfully he seems to be all right there. And then, not to be outdone, when Bradshaw was tagged in, X-Pac bounced off the ropes and charged toward him, but he was met with a brutal-looking boot to the face. I mean, good lord, poor Sean Waltman is really earning his money tonight. But now, let's skip ahead to the finish, and at this point, X-Pac and Bradshaw are both down on the mat, and the crowd is fucking into it, hoping that X-Pac can make the hot tag to Kane, and so, let's pick it up from there. Bradshaw down. X-Pac trying to crawl. And he's not Bradshaw With everything in his, his being and to make the tag. Yes. The tag has been made. What's he doing? Kane. Another Oh, hey. The big red machine is a flying machine. Oh. Kane opening up now on the F-Lights. Tag team champions in trouble. Touch slam time. And Bradshaw from behind. With the claw wash to left. Okay. Ran right through the tag champion. Double clothesline. The power of the big red machine is absolutely haunting. Boy, this is just this is just a sample of what we're gonna see in that triple threat match tonight with Shawn Michaels gonna be the special ref. Oh, look at this. Oh look out. Oh! Kane knocked over the top rope, but he landed on his feet. And now the the acolytes. <laughs> This is what you get, X-Pac, for trying to use Shane McMahon's Bronco Buster. Trying to put him away. And the X-Factor, the X-Factor, 
If you ain't down with me in the big red machine, being the WWF Tag Team Champs again, hold on. Kane has got two words for you. What? Wait, there he is. Here's that speech hey. thing. You don't, you don't need this damn thing anymore. Come on. Let's hear without this thing. Come on! I can't believe this. Kane's got two words for us. Fuck So X-Pac made the hot tag to Kane, who proceeded to climb to the top rope and hit Bradshaw with a flying clothesline. However, the Acolytes managed to mount a bit of a rally, and Bradshaw actually ended up clotheslining Kane over the top rope and down to the floor. From there, Farouk picked up X-Pac for a dominator, but Pac escaped and nailed Farouk with an X-Factor. Kane pulled Bradshaw out of the ring, X-Pac made the cover on Farouk, referee Mike Kyoto made the count, even though X-Pac was clearly not the legal man since he had just made the hot tag to Kane, but whatever. And ladies and gentlemen, we have new WWF Tag Team Champions. X-Pac and Kane are now two-time champions. And with that, the Acolyte's second reign with the titles, which began at Fully Loaded, has now ended after only 15 days. And once the match concludes, the road dog Jesse James comes to the ring to celebrate, and he brings Kane's voice box with him. X-Pac says that Kane has two words for us, but before he can use the device to speak, X-Pac tells him that he doesn't need it anymore, and yes, we finally get to hear Kane speak his first words without the assistance of the voice box, and he says, Suck it! Which honestly made me think... Why would he have even bothered to use that voice box thing at all if he could just speak on his own anyway? He can clearly talk normally, so why go through the added hassle of sounding like he's speaking through the intercom at the local Wendy's? Doesn't make sense to me. Regardless, though, pretty fun moment for sure, and honestly, I thought the segment was going to end on that high note. But no, The Undertaker and The Big Show then reemerge to extract some revenge on all three men after Kane, X-Pac, and Road Dog had gotten the better of them earlier on in the show. This time, though, Taker and Show proceed to lay all three of them out, and from there, we go to commercial. On the plus side, though, we got yet another really hot segment on this show, with the Chicago crowd going absolutely insane for Kane. I'm not sure if the clip I played did it justice, but they were going bonkers for the hot tag and Kane's subsequent top rope clothesline, not to mention the actual pinfall itself. 
Kudos to Vince Russo for realizing what's working. Kane and X-Pac had taken a few months off from teaming with each other, but putting them back together over the past few weeks has proven to be a really smart move, so credit where it's due. And after a commercial break, we go to GTV, and this week we drop in on Billy Gunn getting a massage somewhere, and he asks the masseuse why she has what appears to be a bowl of salad sitting nearby. She informs him that they are actually, quote, oriental herbs designed to make the body feel soft, and so, of course, Billy requests that she rub his ass with the herbs, but he then gets a little bit worried when the masseuse puts on gloves before handling them. However, she manages to reassure him that she's only wearing those because she's not worthy of touching his majestic posterior. And by the way, in case you're wondering if it's acceptable to tell a masseuse to touch your ass, Google the name Deshaun Watson. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. And from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is a tag team encounter, Ken Shamrock and Test versus the Lethal Weapon Steve Blackman and Joey Abs. And speaking of Joey Abs, Shane McMahon actually accompanies Joey to the ring, but then he heads over to the commentary table to do some chatting with JR and the King. And in case you need a reminder, two weeks ago, Test attacked Pete Gass and injured his ribs, and last week he beat the crap out of Rodney, to the point that we're told that he separated his shoulder and broke Rodney's arm, so clearly Test has no love lost for the Mean Street Posse. Meanwhile, Steve Blackman previously hit Ken Shamrock with a car, to which Shamrock responded last week by wrapping a metal chain around his fist and punching Blackman repeatedly in the face. So now that I think of it, these two feuds in this tag match have some pretty violent backstories here. And early on in the match, Blackman hit Test with a pump kick, and Test rolled out to the floor, at which point Shane McMahon immediately got up from his commentary position and started getting in some cheap shots on Test. Strangely, though, Shane just went right back to commentary after he did that. If I were him, I probably would have headed for the hills, but hey, to each his own. So the match continued on, with Test and Joey Abs wrestling inside the ring, while Shamrock and Blackman brawled on the floor. At one point, Blackman pulled out a kendo stick, but Shamrock managed to take it away from him, and Shane then grabbed a chair and tried to hit Shamrock with it, but before he could do that, Shamrock swung the kendo stick at him, causing the chair to bounce right back into Shane's own face. Meanwhile, back in the ring, Tess nailed Joey Abs with the pump handle slam, he made the cover, referee Tim White made the count, and that was good enough for the one, the two, and the three in a sprightly two minutes and 30 seconds. Your winners of the match are Test and Ken Shamrock. And then, as soon as the bell rang, Test put a chair around Joey Abs' left leg, he went to the second rope, he jumped off, and yes, Test just pilmanized poor Joey Abs' ankle as Shane McMahon looked on in horror. And then, as if that wasn't enough, he put the chair around his ankle and did it again a second time. Good lord. So Test has broken Pete Gass's ribs, he broke Rodney's arm, and now, presumably, he just shattered Joey Abs' ankle like a dry twig. The man does not like Connecticut Blue Bloods. Well, except the, the one he's dating. And once that segment concludes, we then cut backstage where an irate Billy Gunn walks up to a stagehand. He says that he's experiencing an allergic reaction, and he then proceeds to pull his pants down, exposing his thong. And yes, Mr. Ass has a red ass. The stagehand tells him that it looks like a reaction to poison ivy, and I'd love to know how she's fit to make that diagnosis since she's literally just a random person backstage wearing a lanyard. But hey, let's assume that she's correct, and I think we can put two and two together and... 
assume that Billy Gunn's masseuse has sabotaged his glorious ass. And after commercial break, we go backstage where Michael Cole is with Test, who calls the Mean Street Posse, and I quote, those three little butt sniffers. He also literally calls Joey Abs a biatch, and he says that now there are no Posse members left to protect Shane, so pretty soon he'll get him as well. And you know, some might say that the most dangerous combination in the WWF is Triple H and his sledgehammer, but I think Test and a microphone may be a close second. And speaking of people who shouldn't be allowed anywhere near a microphone, we then cut elsewhere backstage where Terry Taylor is with Steve Blackman. He says he wants to finish things once and for all with Ken Shamrock, and to do that, he's willing to step into Shamrock's specialty match, the Lion's Den, but only if the Lion's Den is surrounded by weapons. And honestly, I kind of want to see that too. Make it happen, Commissioner Michaels. Make that shit happen. And from there, we then go back into the arena where The Rock is heading to the ring. Now, obviously, you probably all know what's coming, but before we get there, while Rock is making his entrance, Jim Ross tells us that this week is WWF Week on MTV, and I tried to find some examples of what exactly was on WWF Week, and as it turns out, on the very same day that this episode of Raw aired, earlier that day, Carson Daly hosted a show called I Wanna Be a WWF Superstar with special guest judge Mankind. And if you recall, MTV had previously done a talent search called Wanna Be a VJ, which gave us the disgrace that was Jesse Camp, but also Dave Holmes, who's had a pretty successful career since then. But anyway, I Wanna Be a WWF Superstar was sort of a half-hour-long spin-off of that. And as for the finalists, they were actually divided into tag teams, the Hungarian Barbarian and Mad Whipper Whip, J.R. Ryder and John the Sure Thing Shane, and Boogaloo Lou and Jimmy the Geek, who is pretty much just plagiarizing the Bushwhackers' former manager, Jameson. And in case you were wondering, Mick Foley chose the Hungarian Barbarian as the winner, and he may have actually made the right choice because he goes on to have about a nine-year career on the indies. Although I will say... J.R. Ryder actually looked pretty great, so I did a little research on him, and as it turns out, he actually did end up working a few WWF slash WWE shows on Jacked and Velocity, and most notably, he actually loses to The Godfather on the October 10th, 1999 episode of Sunday Night Heat, so he got to wrestle on a show that was watched by millions of people, so not a bad accomplishment there for J.R. Ryder. But, just to quickly tie this back into The Rock, the highlight of this show was when Carson Daly kicked into a promo from The Rock, and, well, anytime I get a chance to remind you of the 1999-ness of this podcast, I'm going to do it, so take a listen here. We're going to go back to Chicago, site of tonight's Raw, to see what the people's champion has to say. Of course, I'm talking about The Rock. Rock, you've seen The Wannabes. What do you think? Well, Carson Daly, The Rock will tell you exactly what he thinks. He thinks you're a complete idiot, so know your role and shut your mouth. The Rock says you should take the title of this contest to want to be a WWF superstar, to want to be just like The Rock. Or you might as well change it to exactly what it is, the world's number one Rudy Poo candy ass. But The Rock says this, Carson Daly, he's got a little question for you. The Rock says, what do you think about Britney Spears? No, she's all right. It doesn't matter what you think about Britney Spears, because The Rock says she keeps calling The Rock, gawking, looking at The Rock, honey, that's got to stop. In a couple of years, when you get older, The Rock might give you the time of day, but until then, you just continue to be one of the millions and the millions of The Rock's fans if you smell what The Rock is cooking. 
uh, The Rock cutting a promo on Carson Daly and talking smack about Britney Spears. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you 1999. But anyway, getting back to this episode of Raw, the aforementioned Rock is making his way to the ring, and he proceeds to call out the big show since The Undertaker is now booked for the main event. But, well, as you probably know by now, Rock gets a rather unexpected interruption. So, ladies and gentlemen, here it is. And yes, I know I've already played a lot of audio clips on this episode. And yes, I know this segment is a little bit long. But fuck it. You know what's coming. And, of course, I have to play the entire thing for you here. Big Show, The Rock says, seeing as that jabroni you call a partner, The Undertaker is booked tonight for a match that pretty much leaves you free. So The Rock says, if you've got any fortitude in them little bitty things you call balls. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh, very personal here. That's what this is about. Then tonight, in front of all The Rock's fans, you will go one-on-one with the great one. Rock laying down a challenge for the big show tonight. And go on and check your big fat ass directly into the SmackDown Hotel. Big show's gonna need a big king size bed, isn't he? Wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. Is that Millennium Clock? It's the Millennium JR 10, 9, 2, down, 6, to the Millennium 4. We're counting down here. 2, we're counting it down. What? What? Well, all hail the Ayatollah of Rock and 
Dan Rola. Got a nice haircut, I can say that. Now, when you think of the new millennium, you think of an event so gigantic that it changes the course of history. You think of a dawning of a new era. In this case, the dawning of a new era in the WWF. The Rock is not impressed. Thank you. Thank you. Jericho's got a lot and of a new guts. era is what this once proud and profitable company sorely needs. What was once a captivating, trend-setting program has now deteriorated into a cliched, let's be honest, boring snooze fest that is in dire need of a knight in shining armor. Oh, he's talking about you and now, that's JR. why I'm here. Chris Jericho has come to save the WWF. Oh, from what? Well, you're going to get your pink slip. Now let's go over the facts. Television ratings, downward spiral. Who's he kidding? Pay-per-view buy rates, plummeting. Mainstream acceptance, non-existent. And reactions of the live crowds, complete and utter silence. And I know why you're silent. You're silent because you're embarrassed to be here. What? And quite honestly, I'm embarrassed for you. And the reason why you're embarrassed is because of the steady stream of uninteresting, untalented, mediocre sports entertainers who you're forced to cheer for and care for. No wonder you're not cheering. You can care less about every single idiot in that dressing room. And especially this idiot in the center of the ring. A rock is going to explode, King, any minute. You people have been led to believe that mediocrity is excellence. Uh-uh. Jericho is excellence. He's got a lot of guts to interrupt the rock. And now, for the first time in WWF history, you have a man who can entertain you. You have a man who is good enough for you. You have a man who can make you jump up off your chairs, raise your filthy fat little hands in the air, and scream, Go, Jericho, go! Go, Jericho, go! Go, Jericho, go! Thank you. The new millennium has arrived in the WWF. And now that the Y2J problem is here, this company, from the front office idiots to all of the amateurs in the dressing room, including this one, to everybody watching tonight, will never, ever be the same again. Y2J, did he say Y2J? Yeah, I heard it. Look, The Rock is dumbfounded. He's an arrogant young man. says, know your role, and shut your mouth! I second that. Ha! 
little jabroni come on the rock show and not even have the class to introduce yourself? What is your name? I told you. It doesn't matter what your name is. Oh, no. You got you. That one. The Rock says you talk about your Y2J plan. Well, The Rock has a little plan of his own, and it's called the KY Jelly Plan. Oh, no. Which. <laughs> you know what that is, JR? Yeah. You do? gonna lube his size 13 boot real good turn that some bitch sideways oh. and stick it straight up you can do it So yes, The Rock begins by calling out the big show, but while he's waiting for an answer, the Millennium Countdown Clock appears on the Titantron. And lo and behold, after all these weeks, it finally expires. From there, we get some fancy colored lighting, until eventually the lights go out entirely. After a big blast of pyro, a song begins, a video cues up on the Titantron, and we see one word appear on the screen, Jericho. The lights then come back on, and sure enough, we see Chris Jericho standing at the top of the ramp, decked out in a sparkly shirt, his arms outstretched at his sides. And his first words in his new company are, Welcome to Raw is Jericho. And clearly, that's a bit of a nod to the fact that he used to refer to Monday Nitro as Monday Jericho when he was in WCW. Now, obviously, this moment is an all-timer in the history of wrestling. It's an underutilized wrestler coming over from a rival organization and immediately making an impact by interrupting one of the top stars in his new company. And I really enjoyed the promo, but I will say it might go on just a bit too long. But fortunately, though, it's Chris Jericho. So when the fans start chanting for The Rock, he has the wherewithal to ad-lib and say thank you as though he thought they were chanting for him. So I chuckled at that. And of all the things he says, since this is 1999 after all, he references the Y2J problem, obviously a reference to the impending Y2K glitch, which was all over the news at the time. And as you all probably know by now, that goofy little play on words ends up being Jericho's nickname going forward. And in fact, you can still sometimes hear Y2J chants when Jericho wrestles in the present day in AEW 23 years later. Go figure. However, despite Jericho getting this moment to shine, The Rock ends up getting the last laugh because instead of the Y2J plan, Rock has a KY jelly plan, and, well, you heard what that entailed. Now, I ask you, was it the right move for The Rock to get the upper hand here even though Jericho was the one who just debuted? I'll leave that up to you to decide, but I'd say it worked out pretty well in the long run. But on this night, Jericho could only look on and make silly faces as Rock got the better of him. And by the way, more on those silly faces in just a moment. So yes, folks, Chris Jericho has officially arrived in the WWF. An already stacked roster just got even uh, stacked 
er. And to any WCW stars who are considering jumping to the WWF, look what can happen. You too can come in and immediately duel on the mic with The Rock. Or hey, just flash back to when The Big Show debuted in February and he got to throw Stone Cold through a cage. Come to the WWF and this could be you. And on that note, I think this is probably the second best jump from one major wrestling company to another that we've ever seen, behind only Scott Hall making the leap over to WCW and declaring war on the WWF. I'm sure your mileage will vary, but yes, I would rank Scott Hall's jump slightly above Jericho's here, but feel free to let me know if you agree or disagree. And now, in a first for this podcast, I'm going to read from not one, but Two autobiographies from the same person, and the reason why is because Jericho's first autobiography ends when he talks about his WWF debut, and his next one actually picks up right where he left off. So we'll start with Jericho's 2007 book, A Lion's Tale, Around the World in Spandex, and by the way, he actually devotes an entire chapter to his WWF debut in that book. I'm obviously not going to read the entire thing, but I'll trim it down for you so you can hear some of his thoughts. Quote, Now that I was an official WWF superstar, I was on the phone with Vince Russo constantly, discussing ideas and scenarios. I was dropping off some mail at the post office when I saw a clock on the wall counting backward. Underneath the clock, it said, Countdown to the New Millennium. I thought, that would be a cool way for someone to come into the... Wait, that's a cool way for me to come into the WWF. I called Russo and he promised to run my idea past Vince McMahon that day. Russo called me back a day later and said that not only did Vince love the idea, but he was going to calibrate the clock to start a month before my debut. This way, it would hit zero right at the exact moment of my first WWF appearance on the August 9th, 1999 edition of Monday Night Raw. I spent that week writing my debut promo. In WCW, I'd done a lot of my promos improv, but with this one, I wanted to get everything just right beforehand. I had a few ideas about what I wanted to say, and when I put pen to paper, the whole thing flowed out of me within 10 minutes. The next morning when I arrived at Allstate Arena in Chicago, I suited up in my new Y2J costume of a pair of Harley Davidson leather pants and a silver rave shirt that I bought from a hip-hop shop. I put my hair into the Gene Simmons top knot, combed the billy goat beard I'd grown for the occasion, looked in the mirror, and gave myself a Billy Idol sneer. My costume complete, I walked out of the dressing room as cocky as a male porn star, acting like I owned the place. I ran into Vince, who was getting a cup of coffee and catering. He looked me up and down, his eyes settling on my recoculous hairstyle. It's cheap heat, Vince. Indeed, he nodded with a weird look on his face and strutted away. And I'm going to quickly end the quote here because he doesn't really add too much more insight from there. The way he ends the book is basically just describing the countdown and what he felt as the clock was ticking down to zero, with the final line of the book being... The pyro went off with double force, and I walked through the curtain straight into my dream come true. So yes, he ends a lion's tale on a very positive note, but then we go to his next autobiography, Undisputed, How to Become the World Champion in 1,372 Easy Steps, which picks up right where he left off. Does he maintain that positivity? Well, here's an excerpt from chapter one of that book. Quote, As soon as I breached the curtain and interrupted The Rock mid-promo, the crowd response was unbelievable. Jericho signs were everywhere, and people were jumping up and down with huge smiles on their faces, ecstatic that it was me that was the big surprise at the end of the countdown, and not the return of the gobbledygooker. I knew that I had made the right decision in leaving WCW. Due to the buildup of my debut, I was already a bigger star in WWE after 30 seconds than I had been in WCW after three years. I had been planning this moment for months and knew exactly what I wanted to do. 
I had seen Michael Jackson in concert in 1993 in Mexico City and had never forgotten the monumental entrance he made. He propelled up from underneath the stage and froze his back to the crowd and his arms in a crucifix position for what seemed for hours, and the crowd went nuts with anticipation. I wanted to do the same thing for my debut, so I stood with my back to the crowd in a Jesus Christ pose and let the crowd rumble. Even though the Titantron read Jericho in 10-foot-high letters, it wasn't until I spun around and people saw my face that they really exploded. Now, by the way, just as a quick side note here, I actually looked up this 1993 Michael Jackson concert in Mexico City to see how close it was to the entrance Jericho describes here, and truthfully, it's really not that similar. MJ does indeed propel himself from underneath the stage, and he does milk the moment for a while as the crowd is going crazy, but his arms are at his sides, and he's facing the audience, not doing a Jesus pose with his back turned to them. So maybe Jericho was thinking of a different Michael Jackson concert, who knows? But anyway, back to the book, and I'll skip ahead to the end part of the promo after Rock has gotten the upper hand on him. As a heel, my job was to sell his oral beatdown, and that I did. The problem was, I sold it like a scalded dog, trademark Jim Ross, and got this look on my face like I was about to cry. It was a trick I picked up in WCW, but I was soon to discover that the type of heel I was used to playing didn't fly in the brave new world of the WWE. As a result, in the course of a couple of minutes within my first promo, I went from a confident, cocky, why to Jack the Lad to a whining, huffy crybaby. I was trying to go all out to be the bad guy, but in doing so, I turned myself into a comedy figure, the type of heel that can't be taken too seriously. Even though it was a great entrance and a classic WWE moment, watching it now makes me cringe because I would never act that way anymore. But in 1999, I didn't know any better. Instead of keeping any badass credibility, I became a cowardly cartoon. It should have taken a lot more than one insult to turn me into a sniveling baby. The worst part came at the end of the promo, when The Rock unleashed his patented, if you smell what The Rock is cooking. For some reason, I contorted my face into a sulky, Popeye-like grimace, as if I just found Bluto snorting spinach off of Olive Oil's naked ass. It was the wrong card to play on my first night in the WWE. My cowardly heel routine made it hard for the audience to believe that I was a credible opponent for a megastar like The Rock, even though that was the initial plan. Because of my Popeye puss, that train was derailed before it left the station. End quote. So there you have it. Jericho loved the build-up to his debut, but by his own admission, he thinks he ruined it by making funny faces at the end instead of taking The Rock's insults in stride. Very interesting. Personally, I don't think his goofy mannerisms overshadow the moment. They're a bit strange, sure, but looking back on this 23 years later, I'd say everything about this is still pretty great. The anticipation of the countdown... Jericho's promo, Rock's response, fantastic stuff. Even that awesome Break the Walls Down theme music ends up being Jericho's theme for his entire run with the company, and I feel like that's a rarity to have someone on the roster for so long, and they never once change their theme song. So yes, Chris Jericho has now arrived in the WWF, and I have to say, as someone who covers these Attitude Era episodes of Raw, I'm quite happy about this, because I know I'm going to get at least one more entertaining segment on the show every single week. And I hope you'll all enjoy them along with me as well. So how do you follow up one of the most iconic debuts of all time? Well, of course, you cut backstage where Hardcore Holly yells at an unseen person, and he tells them that if he sees the big show, he needs to tell him that the big shot is looking for him. So in our last segment, The Rock was calling out the big show before Jericho appeared, and now Bob Holly is looking for him too. Quite the popular guy. 
And so, after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, WWF Hardcore Champion, The Big Boss Man, versus the road dog Jesse James in a hardcore rules match. But interestingly, for some reason, the hardcore title is not on the line, which I would say is probably a pretty good indicator of who's going to end up winning this match. But hey, let's see how it goes. And by the way, these two guys did this same scenario pretty much in reverse back at Royal Rumble 99, because in that match, Road Dog was the hardcore champion going in, but the title wasn't on the line when he faced Boss Man, so go figure. But anyway, as for the match itself, Jim Ross informs us that the big boss man will be defending his hardcore title against Al Snow at SummerSlam, and that little tidbit ends up coming into play pretty much immediately. Why? Because Boss Man powerbombs Road Dog through a table literally a minute into the match, but once he does that, Al Snow runs out from backstage. And before Boss Man can pin Road Dog, Al smacks Boss Man in the head with a pet carrier, and he nails him so hard that the door of the carrier actually flies right off its hinges. Now, you're probably asking yourself, was Al's dog Pepper inside the cage at the time? And apparently they certainly want us to think he was, because Al can be seen reaching inside the cage and talking to something. But just to be clear, Pepper was not actually in the pet carrier, but in storyline, they want us to believe he was. No chihuahuas were harmed in the making of this match. But anywho, Road Dog takes that opportunity to roll up Boss Man while he's still lying in the table wreckage. Referee Jimmy Corderas makes the count, and yes, your winner of this non-title match is indeed the Road Dog Jesse James. So the Road Dog wins thanks to outside interference from an actual dog. Dare I say, poetic. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is The Rock versus The Big Show. And yes, I am just as surprised as you are that Rock called out Big Show before Jericho interrupted, and we are actually getting a Rock versus Big Show match. I kind of just assumed that Rock would forget about Show once Jericho appeared, but no, we're getting the Rock versus Big Show on free television, and hey, I'll take it. Big Show, by the way, though, enters to his customary, well, it's the Big Show theme song instead of that new music that he shares with The Undertaker, so that caught me a bit by surprise. But what wasn't surprising was that the Big Show was in control for most of the early going here, putting Rock in a bear hug and also hitting him with a really nice-looking flying clothesline. And then, as you might expect from that little backstage skit, Hardcore Holly shows up on the scene, and, well, things proceed to get a little bit crazy from there. And what the hell? What is up with Hardcore Holly? He needs some. He needs psychiatric help. He's been looking for the Big Show all night. Big Show just told him to get his posterior out of here. Oh, oh, just got a headbutt for his efforts. And a low blow. A rock with a low blow on the Big Show. I missed it. The rock went downstairs and caught the Big Show with a low blow. Slam. And I think his butt's still itching. I'm a yep. 
Mr. Ross's ass, but I can tell you this about the Rockies. He's playing right now just like he's going to be left playing in SummerSlam. But what the Rock ought to do, he had, it looked to me like he was going to put the finishing touches on the big show, then Jericho, and then emphatically, it was Mr. Ass. Jericho is Okay, so with the Big Show in control, Hardcore Holly got up on the ring apron for some reason. And after all these weeks, the Big Show finally had enough of him, and he hit Holly with a headbutt. However, that provided The Rock with an opening to hit Big Show with a low blow, which the camera actually missed, and Rock followed that up with a DDT. And when he hit that DDT, it became clear that Show was in perfect position for a people's elbow. But before Rock could hit it... Chris Jericho ran into the ring. Yes, you heard that correctly. Just a few minutes after his epic debut, Jericho returned and hit Rock from behind, causing a disqualification. I mean, seriously, does anyone remember that Jericho also did a run-in after his debut promo? Because I sure as hell didn't. I mean, shit, Jericho doesn't even mention it in his own book. And also, this doesn't exactly make Jericho look all that strong right off the bat, because he basically just gives Rock a two-handed shove in the back and doesn't even knock him over. Rock just kind of turns around with a wide-eyed look on his face as Jericho holds his arms out like, huh, see what I did there, huh? And then before Rock can even get his hands on Jericho, Billy Gunn runs out from backstage and attacks the people's champ. So Jericho literally appeared for about 10 seconds before rolling out of the ring and leaving, and the focus was put onto Mr. Ass instead. Welcome to the WWF Y2J, and be prepared for more uneventful booking until the end of the year at least. And then from there, Billy Gunn hit Rock with a jackhammer, stood over him, and yelled in his face. Billy then exited the ring as Jerry Lawler proclaimed that his butt was still itching from what the masseuse had done to him earlier. I mean, honestly, why even have Jericho do the run in here? Clearly, Billy Gunn could have just done it himself. Frankly, we didn't need to see Jericho again tonight after that amazing promo, and especially when they barely had him do anything here. They should have just let the moment breathe, in my humble opinion. It kind of reminded me of when Mick Foley was thrown off the top of Hell in a Cell at King of the Ring 98, but then he returned and did a run-in during the very next match. Let the moments breathe, people. Let them breathe. And speaking of people returning after great moments, when we come back from commercial, we are introduced to the special guest commentator for our main event, Jesse the Body Ventura. So once again, they weren't content to just leave it at Jesse doing a promo. Now he'll be on commentary as well, although not that that's a bad thing, I guess. But yes, that segues us into tonight's main event, the triple threat, no holds barred, falls count anywhere match to determine the number one contender for the WWF title, The Undertaker, who is accompanied by Paul Bearer, versus Triple H versus China with special guest referee Commissioner Shawn Michaels. The rare heel versus heel versus heel main event. And let's just say you may want to remember that falls count anywhere part for a little bit later on. Also, HBK is wearing a t-shirt that says Shawn Michaels Wrestling Academy. And I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'll say it again because I think it's pretty cool. A young Brian Danielson is training with HBK at that school right now. Danielson graduated from high school in Washington State in 1999, and he then moved down to San Antonio to train with Shawn Michaels. So just remember, when you see HBK on this broadcast, he's literally in the process of training a guy who later ends up being one of WWE's most popular wrestlers. So I think that's pretty cool to think about. 
And right as the match is beginning, Jesse Ventura actually reminds me of his good old days on commentary because Jim Ross says that Stone Cold was taken out with a cement block earlier tonight, but Jesse says that Ross doesn't know that. He's seen Austin chug a bunch of beers before, so maybe he just got drunk and passed out. And suddenly, I feel like I'm back in 1989 with Jesse being a dick to Gorilla Monsoon on commentary. Ah, good times, good times. Now, obviously, this match is supposed to be a triple threat match, but early on, it's basically just The Undertaker versus Triple H because China gets taken out almost immediately. She goes to the second rope with the intention of attacking Taker, but he punches her in the face, causing her to fall over the top rope and down to the floor, and without exaggeration, China then sells that fall for almost three minutes. She is literally just lying on the floor that entire time while Hunter and Taker go at it. But eventually, she does manage to reappear. Back in the ring, The Undertaker sets Triple H up for a chokeslam, at which point, China reemerges and hits Taker with a low blow to break it up. So interestingly, China is indeed remaining loyal to Triple H in this match, despite his earlier statement that she was just a girl. Or maybe not, because China and Hunter then proceed to put the boots to Taker, at which point Triple H extends a handshake to China. She shakes his hand, then nails him in the face with a forearm. And then she even hit Triple H with a low blow for good measure, so clearly China has no loyalty when it comes to being the number one contender. From there, however, The Undertaker snuck up on China and hit her with a chokeslam, but Hunter didn't appreciate that, so he hit Taker with a running knee. But then Triple H saw China down on the mat, so he tried to pin her, ever the opportunist. But before HBK could count to three, The Undertaker broke up the pin. And shortly after that, we get our finish. While the match is going on, we get a quick cut backstage, and, well, take a listen to what happens from there. And the Undertaker tried a little intimidation tactics there on Michaels. I don't think that's going to work either. Not going to work on Jesse the body. Wait, 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 hey, wait a minute. There's Austin. What's he doing? Austin's back from the hospital, and he's got a steel chair. Kind of knocked down. Helsley knocked over the top rope by the Undertaker. Where was Austin? Is he is he in the building? Austin had a chair horse. Where? I don't see Austin. Was he coming our way? All I'm seeing, Undertaker better stick to business, not worry about the referee. Undertaker having words of referee Shawn Michaels here. But Stone Cold Steve Austin is back in the arena. I don't know where he is. We saw him just moments ago. And oh, here he comes. Here comes a rattlesnake. Here comes the rattlesnake. Here comes the champion of the world. Apparently, he wants to pick out who he's going to face. Off to the chair, knocking Helmsley out. And what? Austin putting China on Helmsley. Now, wait a minute. Austin, you can't. No, wait a minute. Jeff, oh. China. China's a number one contender. What? China's a number one contender. The number one contender at SummerSlam. The night one of the all right so as you heard there with the match going on we cut backstage where your wwf champion stone cold steve austin exits an ambulance and just as a reminder, he took a cinder block to the skull earlier tonight, but he appears to be totally fine. 
So Austin pushes a stagehand off a chair, he grabs that chair for himself, and he heads off. We then cut back into the arena where the match is still going on, but pretty soon, Stone Cold emerges from the locker room, chair in hand, and yes, he then proceeds to nail Triple H in the skull with a chair shot, and Hunter falls down to the arena floor. But as a reminder, the match is falls count anywhere, so Austin puts China on top of Hunter, Shawn Michaels makes the count, and that is good enough for the one, the two, and the three. Ladies and gentlemen, your winner and the new number one contender to Stone Cold's WWF title at SummerSlam, China. And we then go off the air with Austin raising his arms in celebration at the top of the ramp as The Undertaker looks on angrily from the ring. So just as a reminder, we are 13 days away from SummerSlam, and China is now set to headline the pay-per-view. Next week is the go-home episode of Raw before SummerSlam, so uh, needless to say, I think there's going to be a bit of a shake-up on that next show. I don't remember how they get to where they eventually get, but I'm sure it will make total sense with no leaps in logic whatsoever. With that being said... I do vividly remember this moment even 23 years later. Not gonna lie, when this happened back in 1999, I was in total shock that China was scheduled to headline a major pay-per-view. Now again, there may be some changes next week, but I was totally convinced that Austin versus China would be the main event of the third biggest show of the year. And I have to wonder, if they did go that route, would the fans have been okay with it? China certainly got a great pop for winning here, but granted some of that pop may have also been because friggin' Stone Cold Steve Austin just came into the arena, but let me know on Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, would you have wanted Stone Cold vs. China at SummerSlam 1999? I'm eager to hear your thoughts on that one. So that is how Monday Night Raw concluded, but we're not done yet, so on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap So last week, Raw put up a 5.85 rating to Nitro's 3.07, but this week, to no one's surprise given the hype for the show, Raw shot right back up to a massive 6.35, while Nitro dropped slightly to a 3.03. Yes, Raw more than doubled them. And perhaps that rating for Nitro would have been higher if they didn't devote a segment to country singer Chad Brock, who performed one of his tunes. Fun fact for you here, Chad Brock was actually a wrestler in WCW until an injury forced him to retire, at which point he became a country singer, and admittedly, I'm not much of a country fan, but when I looked up his body of work, it says that his song called Yes actually hit number one on the country music charts back in the year 2000, so hey, good for him. His wrestling career didn't work out, but it seems like he did pretty well in his new profession. Now, if you've listened to the past few episodes of this podcast, you'll remember that I've been slagging WCW lately for putting on some pretty uneventful television. However, on this night, perhaps because they knew that Raw was putting on such a huge show, they went ahead and played a certain card that they had not yet played. 
If you recall a few weeks ago, your reigning WCW World Heavyweight Champion Hulk Hogan turned face for the first time in three years, but up to this point, he had still been dressing like black and white NWO Hollywood Hogan, but on this night, before the start of the main event, Hogan shocked the wrestling world when this happened. This is going to be a collision of epic proportions. Not only so much on the line, talk about being in the main event on WCW Monday Nitro. Yes, that's right. For the first time since 1996, Hulk Hogan returned to the red and yellow Hulkamania version of himself, and he even brought back his American-made theme song. And as cheesy as you might think this is, the fans fucking loved it. And on that note, you might be asking yourself, what major city got to see this triumphant return? Was it Atlanta, New Orleans, Philadelphia? Well, actually, the answer is... Boise, Idaho. Yes, for some reason, they saved the return of Hulkamania for Boise, Idaho. And actually, this is the only episode of Nitro to ever air from Boise, so if we have any fans out there in potato country, I'd really like to know if you attended this show, because I bet it was pretty memorable. And as for the main event, Hogan and Sting defeated the team of Sid and Kevin Nash, and clearly, the show must have ended with Hogan dropping the big leg and getting the pin, right? Well... No, actually, Sting put Nash in the Scorpion Deathlock and the referee stopped the match because Nash passed out. So, red and yellow Hogan returns, and his team wins, but he doesn't get the pinfall. That kind of seems like a missed layup to me. You mean to tell me the fans wouldn't have gone apeshit for that leg drop? Come on. Still, though, a truly memorable moment for WCW at a time when there have not been very many of those lately. But what about the other side of the coin? Well, let's take it to... The Raw Synopsis. So I'm going to make a bold proclamation here. This is one of the best episodes of Monday Night Raw in the entire Attitude Era, which probably puts it in the discussion for the greatest episodes of Monday Night Raw in the history of the show. I mean, seriously, just think of what we had on this one episode. The debut of Chris Jericho, the return of Jesse Ventura, the return of Shawn Michaels, we got a tag team title switch, Kane finally spoke without his voice box and gave us that memorable suck it line. China actually became the number one contender for the WWF title, and Stone Cold Steve Austin showed up at the end after they had made us believe that he wouldn't. Not to mention that the Chicago crowd was hot pretty much all night. 
Now, to be clear, the actual wrestling on the show, bit of a mixed bag, but if you want to put on an episode of Raw to just sit back and enjoy yourself for two hours, you really can't go wrong with this one. Needless to say, a massive, massive thumbs up for this show. Tell your spouse and children that Henry Huge Pecks says you have to avoid them for a little while and go watch some wrestling from 1999. I'm sure they will understand. And finally, before we finish up, here are a few notes from this week's edition of the Wrestling Observer. In case you were wondering why Stone Cold was barely involved in tonight's episode of Raw, it's because he's been dealing with a shin injury, and he actually missed a few house shows because of it. And on a related note, since Austin and Deborah are currently dating, Deborah also missed those shows as well, since they're apparently a package deal. And Meltzer also notes that Austin is now getting the reputation of being a bit difficult to work with, since he recently refused to work matches on television with both Jeff Jarrett and Billy Gunn, because he felt they didn't deserve the rub. To which I say, oh, just wait for the next few weeks, because there's clearly someone else that Stone Cold doesn't feel deserves the rub, and it's going to impact SummerSlam pretty substantially. Stay tuned for that. And on a related note, over in WCW, Ric Flair missed this week's episode of Nitro due to a back injury, but some speculate that his reason for skipping the show may have been because he was asked to put over longtime real-life nemesis Shane Douglas, who Flair didn't think deserved the rub. Clearly a common theme this week. But funny enough, Meltzer actually notes that most of the locker room agrees with Flair on this one, since Douglas actually doesn't deserve it. And just for the record, in case you're wondering why Shane Douglas hates Ric Flair, we can actually refer to a quote-unquote shoot interview that Douglas did on the February 21st, 2001 episode of Thunder, where he explains how he came to dislike the Nature Boy. Well, I went to Ric Flair like a lot of us young guys in the dressing room. If you want to be the best in this game, why not go to the best and ask him? So I asked the Nature Boy, please watch my matches and teach me. Tell me what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. Instead of saying no, he was too busy, he said yes that he would do that. On a night-to-night basis, he would say, that was great, Shane, keep doing it. Same thing tomorrow night. And I started thinking to myself, he's not even watching my matches. I would go to him and play this little game. I would say, hey, Rick, did you see me do the cross body off the top rope tonight? And he said, that was tremendous. Do it again tomorrow night. I never did a cross body in the match. And so I knew Ric Flair was playing this game with me. I I was crushed. And that started the seed of hatred for Ric Flair that would later boil into a real turmoil. So there you go, Shane Douglas hates Ric Flair because he lied about watching his matches back in the early 90s when he was starting out in the business. And if you want to dig a little bit deeper, there's also a shoot interview out there where Douglas says that he saw Flair pulling his dick out in a bar, and as a young up-and-comer at the time, he didn't think that was how the WCW world champion should be acting. In fairness, though, he's probably not wrong about that last part. Staying with WCW news, Mean Gene Okerlund's contract is due to expire soon, and he tried to get an offer from the WWF to use as leverage in his negotiations, but apparently the WWF had no interest in even talking to him. And honestly, that's probably the right call at this point, too. I mean, can you picture old-school announcer Mean Gene Okerlund in the Attitude Era? Seems like it probably would have been a weird fit. Vince Russo has officially stopped writing articles for WWF Magazine so he can fully concentrate on doing the writing for the weekly television shows. Now, I want you all to remember this for the coming weeks because, let's just say, Vince Russo feeling overworked is going to play a big role when SmackDown debuts and he's tasked with writing a whole other television show for no increase in pay. So just just file that away for later. 
And finally this week, Rena Merrow, the former Sable, appeared on The Howard Stern Show to discuss her post-WWF life. And since she is a beautiful woman appearing on Stern's show, you can probably guess that Howard was uh, pretty forthright with his intentions. However, he did manage to bring up her recent settlement with the WWF, as well as the fact that she's posing for Playboy for the second time this year. So let's take a listen to some of that interview. So am I allowed to legally call you Sable? I have to legally be referred to as the actress who played the role of Sable. Gee, uh -huh. that's a long title. <laughs> I'm going to call you Sable. Let him come you after me. By the time you introduce Absolutely. me. Absolutely. <laughs> She's the artist formerly known. What are you calling yourself now? Rita? Rena, that's my name. Rena's your real name? Yes. You got it all going on, baby. Thank uh, you. You're not even wearing panties, are you? No. Yeah. Oh, that is so hot. I noticed. Well, I normally in. do, but you can't wear panties in certain outfits. I'd love to take your temperature with my tongue if you ever get sick. <laughs> oh, Allow me. Oh, you sure you get accurate readings? Though? Oh, I can get. I can read it down to the tenth of a degree. Trust me, I know how to do that. I think I'm getting warm, Howard. Oh, of course I'm turning you on. Of course. <laughs> Either that, or you're going to throw up. <laughs> so it seemed like things were going pretty well. You're, you're probably the biggest star in the WWF with uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, right? Yes. And uh, everything's going well. And then all of a sudden I read that you say, hey, that's it. I want out. It's sexist. They want me to appear with my top off. They want my top to like kind of like be exposed. They want me to do a lesbian kind of storyline. And I'm not into that. So then you sue them for like $110 million. Yeah. I'm so you got your fame. You got the, now you could go on to other things. Yes. And you got a bunch of dough. Well, I'm not able to discuss the terms of the settlement, but I am very happy. You are. Um, that uh, means to me she's got money. Yeah, who else is happy? Who's happy without money? I'm extremely happy to be moving on with my life. I have a lot So, in other of words, you got a lot of money. <laughs> oh! So, Sable uh, posed in Playboy again. Now, I have the Playboy magazine. You're on the cover. You look very good there. Thank you. You look very good. Then I looked inside to see your vagina. Oh, no. Well, that's right. I wanted to see it. Well, Howard uh, certainly didn't mince words back then, did he? But there you have it. Sable, I mean, Rena, is very happy with her settlement, and she's moving on to bigger and better things, and we will clearly never see her in the WWF again. You can take that to the bank. And so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or if you're more of a fan of that whole brevity thing, just read us five stars on iTunes without writing a review because that's helpful too. Or you could even be like Pam, just Pam, and write a review directly to rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will leave you now with a clip from the 2010 WWE DVD, Breaking the Code, Behind the Walls of Chris Jericho. And in this clip, you'll hear Jericho talk about his debut in the company, but you'll also hear from other WWE personalities such as Matt Hardy, Edge, Christian, The Miz, and Michael P.S. Hayes telling us what they thought of Jericho's arrival. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time for the go-home episode of Raw before SummerSlam 1999. See you next time. I had an inkling that it was going to be Chris Jericho coming in.
And I was really excited for Chris because I thought he would do great things here at the WWE. I thought he would be given opportunities that he wasn't given at WCW. And to come out and interact with The Rock on your first night says that they have faith in you. Chicago, which is always such an amazing crowd and uh, perfect place to make a debut. When I got to Chicago and looked out in the crowd, it seemed like half the crowd knew it was me. Like Vince had sent them personal invitations, come to Chris Jericho's debut on ball. You know, his coming out party is tonight. And I am the new millennium for the World Wrestling Federation. He shows up on stage, walks out, and his first night in, you know, gets to verbally spar with The Rock, who was at the time, you know, the hottest thing going. And now that the Y2J problem is here, this company, from the front office idiots, to all the amateurs in the dressing room, including this one, to everybody watching tonight, will never, ever be the same again! And my favorite part about this is he goes on this long tangent about himself, talking himself up, and The Rock just goes, How dare you, little jabroni, come on The Rock Show and not even have the class to introduce yourself? What is your name? I told you. It doesn't matter what your name is. And there you go. Chris Jericho was a made superstar at that moment. The classic, it doesn't matter what your name is. I mean, that, that'll stand. That'll stand the test of time. That was one of the greatest debuts in the history of this industry. Watching it back, I was really cartoony, really uh, almost bordering on cheesy, and, and I'm making these facials like I'm Popeye the Sailor Man or something, and I just don't like it. But a lot of people say it's one of the most classic film entrances of all time.